Hello, everybody. This is Cortland Allen from NDHackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses and side projects to try to get a sense of how they got to where they are now. Today, I'm talking to Dave DeSandro of Metaphysy. Metaphysy is a one-man operation that Dave started really as a side project, but eventually grew into a substantial enough business that he was able to quit his full-time job at Twitter. What's interesting about Dave's story is its simplicity. He didn't set out to change the world as we know it with a revolutionary new product, but instead of using his skills as a developer and a designer to sell basically widgets to other developers to use on their websites. Metaphysy has been incredibly successful in the past seven years, and today Dave comes on the show to talk about what that journey has been like, and also later on in the episode, uh, how his life has changed as a result of being able to work for himself full-time on his side project. If you are yourself a developer or a designer, an artist, or really any other type of creative who's interested in making a living by doing what you love and taking advantage of the scale provided by the internet, then I think Dave's story is a great example. So without further ado, let's jump right in. I'm here with Dave DeSandro. Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on. You're a little different than some of the people that I've had on recently who are more like traditional business founders. So they're building like these huge companies, they're hiring and managing people, they're building out sales teams. And you, on the other hand, are a lot closer to the side project end of the spectrum, but with an incredibly successful and popular and long-lasting side project, where you've really just you know, started using the skills that you developed as a programmer and a designer to build things that you love and to make money while doing it. So, so I think it's really great to get a chance to talk to you and to bring someone onto the podcast who's coming at things from sort of a different angle. Before we jump in, let me ask, how would you describe what you do? Yeah, sure. So like my basic pitch for even people that don't even work in tech is that I make widgets on websites. Um, so I don't even make the entire website. I make something that another developer would put on their website, and I take care of all that. So they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, they can use one of my products. So I make things like carousels. Uh, one of the products is Flickety. I have another product called Isotope, which does sorting and filtering of lists. So kind of basic functionality that you see all across the web. That's the core business model of, of what I do. That's Those are the products. So you're like the, the developer's developer, really. <laughs> I'm the man behind the man, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're also kind of this, this rare unicorn where not only are you a developer who's capable of building tools that other developers hold in high esteem and uh, widely make use of, but you're also a damn good designer. Uh, and I think by combining these two skills, you're really getting much more than the sum of each part. So you can build products that literally nobody else could build without having to have you know, a two-person team. But you can build them entirely on your own without any sort of you know, overhead or you know, communication or things that might get lost in translation. So let's go back to the point where you developed both of these skills. How did you do that? I guess it's just like a shared interest in, in making stuff. When I was first kind of looking at, <laughs> I mean, it all just started out as a hobby. And uh, I was working like on a blog and I just had a photo blog and I enjoyed working on the, the web design of it. And I didn't really think that I could even make a profession out of, out of it at the time. But, you know, I developed the interest. And at the time, this is, you know, 2006 and 2007 or so, there was just like one, kind of one title and that was web designer. And that brought in that, that was kind of like a wide funnel that brought in people with lots of different kind of talents. So I would say like John Hicks was somebody who's a web designer, but he also did icon design. And then you'd have um, other kind of people that were just like back end. 
so maybe it comes from that, like that kind of uh, history of these kind of catch-all webmasters that um, have di- different kind of things. And so I never thought going into it that, you know, um, you know, I, like anybody, I just kind of pursued my interests. And so I was interested in, in some design stuff and some programming things. And I would say that if anything, you know, it's like I'm a jack of two trades, <laughs> like ma- ma- master of very few, you know. I've also had concerns about like, am I spreading myself too thin by, um, not spreading myself too thin, but like, could I advance myself in a certain niche uh, further than, than other people since, you know, I am working alone. So I'm concerned about like how to best use my time. It doesn't really make sense for me to, to try to be a designer because I, I feel like I, there's way better designers out there. However, maybe I could be a better, you know, front end developer than other people in my group. Yeah. Design is, it can be intimidating. And I think it's because at least one of the reasons is because, uh, you know, it's like any other skill. It's something that you have to learn. But for some reason with design, it just seems like people are just born with it. You know, like when you see a really good design and you're like, there's just no way I could have come up with that. Uh, and yet, like I look at what you've done and it's awesome. So how did you go from being someone who was, you know, maybe on the outside looking in thinking, okay, I want to become a designer, but I'm nowhere near as good as all these other people to being someone who was actually good? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'll go back to like kind of my, my origin story is that, uh, in college, I didn't get a degree in design or programming or anything like that. I kind of got a general Bachelor of Arts degree, and I didn't really know what I wanted to, to do with that. Um, and out of college, I got a kind of office cubicle monkey job where I was like dealing with spreadsheets, and I hated it. But at the time, I had this hobby where I had this photo blog, and I, I loved working on the photo blog and like working on the uh, CMS and with the design. And you know, just kind of pinging around that, you, there was this kind of tight knit community of, of web designers and it just seemed <laughs> very exciting and very appealing. You know, they kind of seemed like they all knew one another and they would all meet together at South by Southwest. So I, I definitely felt like I was like outside looking in on this, you know, from my, my cubicle. And what I did was I just kept on working on the photo blog until the point where I realized like, this is who I am is I, I'm, I'm not just somebody in an office job. I, I am a designer. And kind of once I'm, I made that decision for myself, that kind of changed everything. Cause after that, then I was like, okay, I'm a designer. What do I need? I need to make a portfolio. I need to actually build these skills. I don't know Photoshop or um, illustrator. I don't, you know, know what a web designer does in a, in an actual company. So I was able to find a certificate program that, you know, taught me the, the Adobe suite and also did web design stuff and got me in touch with a lot of people in the area who were actually working as designers. And some of those people are still my friends. And this was, you know, back in 2010 or so. And, you know, those, those relationships have, have still kind of helped me th- throughout my path. Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, a lot of people ask each other and have asked me also about web design. And I think, a while back, five, ten years ago, if you were a great designer, that was something that really made you stand out compared to other apps. Whereas today, it's almost like table stakes. It's so common for people to launch with just these amazing designs that it's easy to feel inadequate, especially as a developer, if you don't have any design skills. And so people are really searching for a way to develop those skills from scratch, at least to a passable level. And I think your example and how you went about it, kind of just diving in, should serve as a good example for people who are looking to do the same thing. Yeah, I would say like the kind of the hardest part to know is like when to stop (laughs) because you can like endlessly keep tweaking 
And I think like one, <laughs> maybe it's a good thing or a bad, but it's like, for me, I kind of lose steam eventually working on a design where I'm like, you know, this is, this is good enough. You're like, because I'm concerned with other things, like once the thing I feel is meets a, a low threshold, I'm, I'm more, I'm more concerned about the other thing. And I look at kind of like what I've designed so far and it's, I never feel like, wow, I really put like a lot of time and effort into the web design things because that's just, I see it as like one of, one of many things. Yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, even the other angle, like coming at it from, okay, well, what is like enough time to put into it is pretty hard because I feel like uh, a lot of people think that, you know, if you're a designer, you're, you're designing something that you just get it right the first try and you just move on. And I think the iteration and the iterative nature of it is completely invisible to people. Like you probably make something and it looks like crap, at least to you when you first make it. And then you keep refining it and refining it until you hit like, you know, a certain point where you're like, okay, I'm done with this. But all of that work that you did is completely invisible and people only see the final product and think, well, you know, I can't first try make something that looks that good. And so they get frustrated. Absolutely. Um, I like to think of George R. R. Martin, who's you know probably the most popular writer right now. You know, he's like the hottest writer that can possibly be. We're all like waiting on pins and needles for the next book to drop. I was reading his; he has this anthology of pretty much his entire short story um, career, even including the stuff where he's he's in high school and he's basically writing like fan fiction and. There's two fascinating parts of it. One is like, just like you said, like he starts off awful and works his way better by better. And by like the time he's like about 25, the stories aren't that interesting, but you can see there's a hint of the writer he's going to become where he's talking about the human condition in a very ridiculous, you know, horror fantasy setting. And the other funny thing is that his ideas will propagate throughout his career. So he mentions in the high school he has, you know, just like a, an action figure called like Carl Drago. And it's like he brought that name with him all the way until he was in his latter careers. Like, let me use this idea that I always thought was good. And he keeps recycling these ideas. And that's why, like, so when you read the Game of Thrones books, you're not just reading a great writer. You're kind of seeing a writer who's built up all these things over decades. And... It's both impressive, but it also is humanizing and that this person just didn't just show up one day and knock it out. Yeah, and I, I think what's interesting is that it's analogous to kind of you and metaphysy because you've been working on metaphysy now for seven years, which is an eternity and the internet age. I mean, you've had a long time to build these libraries and to learn from what you've done in the past and improve. And even before you started metaphysy, you released masonry. Right? So it's really been longer than seven years. Uh, and so maybe it makes sense to start at the beginning. What is masonry and why did you build it? Yeah, masonry was kind of like my first <laughs> claim to fame uh, in internet terms. It, um, masonry is a cascading grid layout library. And you've probably seen it all over. It's like um, Pinterest, I guess, most popularized this kind of style. Um, and even before Pinterest, what masonry was around, and there were, there were other things that did masonry stuff at the time, but they were kind of siloed. So there was another product called Gridalicious, and there was another thing that, that worked with WordPress. Um, there's also Cargo Collective. What masonry did it was a, a jQuery plugin, which meant that other developers could use it, and it was easier to spread. It didn't have to fit in a certain CMS. I think like a lot of my products it's or a lot of things I make, it's not 
a, an original idea, but it's just maybe a little bit easier to use. And it was the right tool at the right time. This was 2010. And that's, you know, right, right around when Pinterest kind of took off. And it was, you know, like the, having lots of images on a web page was like a whole new way to experience the web. Um, and masonry was kind of a big part of like the trend of these image heavy sites at the time. Yeah, it's like the perfect time to launch. Were you uh, were you aware of that going into it, or was it just kind of a happy coincidence? The original reason why I made it is that I had, you know, I had my little photo blog, and I I had an idea for the way I wanted to lay out comments because some comments are longer than others, and it didn't really matter which order they were in. Um, so I personally just, you know, like a lot of people, what they make things, I, I needed it for my own reasons. And it was just like something I I wanted to use on my site. And I saw it, you know, as a way to market myself because at the time I was, um, I may have just landed my first job, but I was trying to make a name for myself. And so that's, that's all I kind of thought it, you know, it, it might be useful and, but it also shows like my skills. I didn't anticipate that it would be such a huge phenomenon. Yeah. And it's, really huge. I mean, it's been used on like 40,000 websites. Your GitHub repository has almost 12,000 stars. You're like 11,991. I'm going to start and see if we can get you to, to, to 12,000. Yeah, it's just incredibly successful. And, it, you know, a year later, uh, 2010, you start your actual company, Metaphysy, on the side. Uh, and at this point, like you said, you've just gotten uh, a new job. You're working full-time as a web designer at an agency. But you wrote something really interesting and your blog post about launching this side project, this company, Metaphysy. You wrote, as masonry is open source and free for commercial applications, it has been leveraged in a number of premium templates. This is awesome as my work can lead to some sort of money, and if the developers of the premium templates are making money off of my resources, why not me? Clearly there's a market for developers who can use my work to turn a profit. Were you kicking yourself at this point, like a year after launching masonry, this thing that turned into a huge phenomenon? Were you kicking yourself for not having decided to charge from the get-go? Oh, no, because um, masonry kind of did much better than I expected. Or like my goal was for me to make a name for myself. And it absolutely did that to the, you know, the point where today, if I'm like at a talk or introducing myself to other developers, I can say like, I'm the, I'm the guy who made masonry. And I feel like some people would, would know what that is. But I mean, that's, that's why I started my business is that because there was a part of me that was like, man, I, I should be making money. Right. Like, like when I saw other people making this stuff, I was like, well, why not me? <laughs> I think it's just so hard in general to, to build something that people like, especially at that scale. And so uh, I totally can identify with like, OK, if you're going to build something that, that's that successful, you know, why not also take advantage of that and also, you know, like charge money? But your decision was to essentially start building other tools. Why didn't you? you know, put a price tag on masonry itself or add more to masonry and start charging for a premium version? I guess because I, and I still feel this, is that the general spirit of the web is that things are free and open. For the things that I work on, which is JavaScript, HTML, CSS, that's largely, largely the case. And I didn't really want to buck that trend. And I felt that masonry was so popular that it, it wasn't exactly mine, you know, like it belonged to everybody. And the other thing is that masonry already existed, whereas if I created a new project, I would be able to introduce it 
with a new set of rules and make money off of that. So I, it was kind of like trying to follow the, the spirit of, you know, front end development and the community that was already a part of. Yeah, that's very true. And I, I think the way that your business models have worked, I really want to go into that in detail later on because it's such an interesting topic. And for people listening who aren't um, developers, you know, what Dave's talking about when he says that front end development has this culture of kind of being open and free. When you write JavaScript and people use it on their website, the code is visible to everyone. Like you don't really have any choice other than to make it basically open source, which kind of facilitates this culture that he alluded to of, of things being free and open. Because uh, it's hard to make money off of something where all of the code and the functionality behind it is totally open, and anyone could just take it and not pay you. But we'll get into that. So, so back to you know the beginning of Metaphysy back in 2010, you decided that. You want to work on extra projects and products and try to sell them for you know profit, but you don't want to charge for masonry itself. What were your long-term goals? Were you thinking that, hey, this is something that I'm going to do on the side? Or were you thinking that, hey, this is something that I want to do like full-time eventually? Oh, at the time, it was just something I wanted to do at the side. I could never think it'd be a, a full-time gig. And you know, I was, I was you know, happy with the work I was doing at the agency, so I wasn't thinking about um, it overtaking things. Before I even started, I kind of got the blessing of the two um, founders of the agency, Alex and Martin, who are two awesome dudes and kind of like led me to this path because they are very, uh, had a great entrepreneurial spirit and big advocates for being in the community and sharing what you know and putting together events that brought people together. And so I asked them for their blessing on this and they were absolutely for it because they realized that, you know, my success would lead to the agency's success. So let's talk about some of the things that you've built, you know, because following the success of Masonry probably seemed like a tough challenge at the time. What was the very first thing that you built after starting Metaphysy? Well, I started Metaphysy around one product. It was called Isotope. And again, this was something that it wasn't my idea. There was another thing that did it at the time called Quicksand, but I thought I could do it better. And also I built this thing around Masonry and so I was really just building on top of masonry. So, so in, in two regards, it wasn't a big step. You know, it was just kind of like a one plus one plus two kind of thing. What Isotope did is that it had the masonry layout, but it also had the ability to filter and sort items. So it could dynamically change where things were and what things were visible and what things were hidden. And, you know, I already saw that this other thing called quicksand was got some buzz. So I knew I could... I could kind of shimmy off of that. And I also had masonry out there. So, you know, I, I had notoriety from that and I could also use it to, to point to isotope. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are excited to work on a project but aren't sure what to work on and have a lot of trouble coming up with an idea because they're under the misconception that whatever it is that they're working on needs to solve some totally unsolved problem, right? It needs to completely just change everything. When in reality... I end up talking to entrepreneurs like yourself, and a lot of what you're doing is looking at what came before, looking at what things are already succeeding and what problems are already solved, and saying, hey, I'm just going to go after this stuff. You know, they don't have to validate the market. All I need to do is build a solution that's you know, better than what's out there, or at least different than what's out there in some way. And I think that's really the safe bet. Were there any other examples that uh, you learned from or that you felt inspired by? I do feel like if anything was new about Isotope, it was it was like the business model, and there wasn't some there wasn't a lot of things for me to look at um, at the time. But I do remember the one thing that 
that was kind of in the same realm where it was charging money for an open source project was this um, suite of tools called Widgmo. Um, and I think it's, it may be still be around, but I don't know if it's still in development. That was an inspiration. Um, now I'm thinking about there's other two. There was Sean Inman's Mint, which was a service that did analytics, you know, kind of like before Google Analytics was around or something you can put on your site for, for tracking like that. And so that was a commercial product. Um, that was kind of associated with the web. And there was generally things like premium WordPress themes, premium Tumblr themes. So I knew there was other kind of things that were kind of similar to it. Um, and so even though there wasn't anything that was specifically like, you know, a JavaScript plugin that you can charge for, I definitely looked at these other things and looked at their licensing, um, their commercial pages, you know, how do they sell it on their homepage? Um, and that gave me <laughs> something to, to at least build off of and uh, work as a reference point. Okay, so you're working a, a full-time job. You're doing Isotope on the side. How long did it take you to get Isotope to the point where it was ready to be released? And how did you juggle that with your work responsibilities? Well, I, I didn't really have a, a timeline. And this, because it was a side project, I was able to you know um, let myself have enough breathing room. But if I remember correctly, it probably took me about three to four months to launch it. And this is my first time kind of working on a project extended like this, even as a side project. I remember the time breakdown was something like it took me close to twice as long to build the documentation as it was to build the actual JavaScript. So like the core code maybe took like a month and a half, but the rest of the stuff took two and a half months. Subsequently, the products I've built since then have the time breakdown has been like that. Because when I get to the documentation stuff, that's actually when it's being put into actual use. And I start have to, to verify the things, the features that I thought that I built. And I start catching a lot of edge cases or I realize that something was um, idealized. I thought it would be work this like really smooth way. But when I actually put it into use, I, I see, you know, the rough corners that need to be sanded off. And I took my time with the documentation. And, and that's kind of still where I feel my products can, can shine um, because... I don't see a lot of developers, or, or when I look at other projects, I feel like their documentation can be um, promote their product much better. Yeah, I was going to say, I think in the open source community, like a lot of people don't have time to put into documentation, or they don't have that much time to, to put into their products to begin with, especially since they're not charging. And one of the things that's really cool about Metaphysics is how much time you put into all your documentation. It's like really a differentiating factor, because for any developer, and I, I think this lesson applies to other companies too, but for any developer, like your first point of contact with the project is the documentation. Like, okay, what what even is this? Are there demos? What does it look like? Is it right for me? How do I use it? You know, I'm running into this bug. How do I fix it? And if the documentation is this afterthought that you know has just been kind of tacked on at the end with very little effort, then it's a significant impediment to people actually adopting and using the product. So I think it sounds like you did it right by you know focusing a ton on the documentation and really. It seems like that comes about from focusing on what things are like from your user's point of view, rather than just your point of view as a developer, which is a lot easier said than done. <laughs> At the time, I, I didn't really have these kind of thoughts formalized. You know, I just kind of want to make something that was special. But since then, I've, I've been thinking about this kind of point. And what I, how I frame it is that I, when 
how do I use other people's things? And typically when I'm using some other tool or something like that, it's like I don't actually care about the tool. The tool is just one of many things that I'm using to, to build the site. So let's say that it's like a package manager like NPM. And for whatever reason, I'm working on a, a project with this new package manager. It's like I don't care about the package manager. I'm only using this to get to the next step. And so with that thought in mind, I've tried to make everything that it's like um, as quick as possible, being very kind of upfront, don't have a lot of happy text. So people can get the information they need and move on to the next thing. Like they don't need to know the philosophy or the methodology behind this sort of tool. It's just like, get me to the point where I'm using it. And then if I need to see more stuff, it's there. But those first kind of like initial onboarding steps are very important. And I think that's like something that's, that's driven home if you're a actually working on a commercial product project or excuse me, commercial product that, you know, people need to be onboarded in. But as like a developer, you don't really frame things in that way. If you think about like onboarding for using a tool, it's just like not part of the vocabulary. So fast forward to today and Metaphysy has a ton of products. You've got Isotope, you have Flickety and Packery, uh, you just released Infinite Scroll. It's a lot of stuff. And what's striking to me about this approach is it's so different than what you see with most startups. Most startups just build one thing, because it seems a lot simpler, and they just iterate on it forever and ever because they want it to be, I guess because it takes a while to get it to be good enough to compete on the market. And yet somehow you've built like six different things that are all good enough to, to sell. How did you decide on this strategy? Yeah, so um, I'll just be upfront about the breakdown. Like, Isotope is still the big tentpole um, for Metaphysy. And I'd say it's about, you know, 50 to 60% of the license sales that I make. From then, it's kind of like I already have one product, like maybe I should make another. And, and kind of Packery came out because that would allow me to point to something else. And hopefully, one helps drive sales of the other and that's kind of my my basic marketing thinking behind building a, a product lineup is that somebody might be looking for one thing and eventually they find you know in the future it's like didn't that one company have the uh carousel widget or something like that you know when they're already using a, a filtering sorting thing and so that's why i'm, I'm I, I build multiple things and the other reason is that once something's built it doesn't require as much time. You know, Isotope take, took three months, three to four months to actually build. But after that, you know, it's still been been making revenue. Um, and so I don't actually have to be actively developing it every day in and out. That's one of the things that I really love about your approach to Metaphysy too, because most companies build this behemoth products that have a giant to-do list of features that never get any smaller. Whereas in Metaphysy, you're just building individual features for other companies to use in their products, which means that your products that you release have a start date and an end date. Once you're done with Isotope, you know you might have to fix a few bugs here and there, but you're done with Isotope and you can move on to something else. And I think that's really the key to passive income. Is this approach something that you planned on taking from the beginning? I didn't know going into it, but after um, Isotope was successful, I realized that was that was the way to go, <laughs> you know. And um, and since then, you know, I've had ups and downs with this kind of approach. So my second product, Packery, it's another grid layout library 
But at the time, people kept on asking for this one feature. And I was like, I can't actually build it. It's, it's tough to do with the, the things I have with Isotope and, and Masonry. So I said, you know what? Let me build something that specifically does this problem, which was dragging uh, grids of items, <laughs> which is like a very kind of like complicated math problem. You have to do like bin packing and stuff like that. And I thought it was like people kept asking for it. I was like, all right, you know what? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it because I finally had the opportunity to do so. And as it turns out, it was one of these things that got a lot of questions, but it's very hard to sell it because how many people are looking for a draggable grid layout libraries? You know, it's, it's kind of like a very niche product. But at the time, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking about like um, quieting the, the, the big request. And so then the next thing was like, all right, let's not do something that's so niche and also spread the availability of what actually metaphysy does so the the two first products were like very similar both and they were very similar to masonry um and so the third product was flickety which was a carousel library which is like everybody uses carousels right so that was something completely different and you know would be different from isotope and packery but i knew people were actually using it and so flickety has been much more successful than packery and so now I'm trying to like kind of broaden things. And that's why the, the latest thing I did was infinite scroll, which was points back to stuff you can do with isotope. And, but it's different enough from that and flickety. So I'm hopefully making that tent bigger. And, and just for context, I'd love to, to talk about like how successful these things have been for you. Because in terms of usage, I mean, masonry, masonry like I mentioned earlier, is, is like 12,000 stars on GitHub. Uh, you made a, a library called Images Loaded. It's used on 70,000 websites, 6,000 stars on GitHub. Isotope is like 30,000 websites, 8,000 stars on GitHub. How much money are you making from all this stuff? Yeah, so I'd say that Metaphysy makes six figures. Uh, it has for the past four years. Um, the most successful years were 2015 and 2016, which it made $120,000 in revenue those years. So this is like full-time programmer job. Like you don't even have to have a job. This is your full-time thing, huh? Yeah. And so um, at the time, uh, or like those years, it was making about what I was, I made from my full-time job. Um, the last time I worked full-time, uh, on, not on Metaphysy was 2014. And, and that year I made the same, my salary over uh, in Metaphysy revenue. What made you decide to quit your job and go full-time on Metaphysy? Yeah, well, at the time, um, this was 2014, and uh, I was working for Twitter in New York City. And Metaphysy had been going for four years at that time. And, you know, year to year, the, it grew basically 200%. It, it doubled over year over year. Like the first year was like 25,000, then it was 50,000. So when I, when I looked at that, I was like, I can, I can be, it's legitimate money. And I wasn't transferring, uh, you know, I wasn't taking too big of a leap. So I didn't have to worry about, I felt that I could, I could sustain this at least for the next year and see where things go from there. And it was just like the the right time for, for, for me to leave the job. I kind of, you know, why anybody leaves job, you know, you, you grow tired of something or you don't feel like you're uh, a full person working at that. So, you know, it was the right time, and but I also, it wasn't too big of a risk. Yeah, I bet it makes it a lot easier to leave your job when, you, <laughs> when you're actually making hundreds of thousands of dollars from, from your side project. 
how did you juggle during this period where you were working at Twitter and also growing Metaphysy? How did you juggle the two things? That sounds like a lot of time. Yeah, well, I mean, to put it into context, you know, I, I was married, um, but I didn't have a kid or I, I do. I do have a son now. But, you know, it was just a lot of things in my life had already been taken care of. So I kind of had uh, enough availability to, to work on Metaphysy on the side during those years. And it's funny, those years, like um, when Metaphysy was growing double, that's when I was <laughs> working on it least. And so a large part of my success is really just luck. You know, like Isotope was the right product at the right time and it didn't have too big of a competition, you know? So it's it's flattering to talk about this like I, I planned it all. But I look back on this, you know, like I just got really lucky with Isotope and it, it took off on its own. You know, I didn't, I hardly did any actual marketing during those years where it was doubling over. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And something you mentioned earlier too about Packery, uh, how it's like, okay, it's like this draggable grid library for JavaScript. Like, you know, how do you like market that thing? You know, how do people find it? But it seems like you did a really good job leveraging your your early success and like having that help the success of your later projects. For example, Masonry is this grid library. Well, Isotope's basically, like you said, built on top of Masonry. And Packery is basically a feature request, you know, that's that came about from Isotope a lot. So, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of luck, but also like it seems like you had like a really good strategy for ensuring that the things that you were building were things that people needed and that people who discovered you for one thing would also, you know, become aware of similar products that you made. Yeah, you know, everything I kind of make is is just another different version of something else that's already out there. <laughs> and uh, like, I remember at the time, I was like, oh, I'm such a big innovator, you know, like masonry is this whole new thing. But <laughs> I've come to realize, I've, I'm, I'm, I've come to embrace, you know, what it is I do now, or I'm just, a, I can clean up stuff and, and kind of present it nice and write, write okay documentation. And that 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 works so far. Yeah. So uh, the other half of the equation, besides the, you know, the building of, of the actual products is the marketing. How have you thought about marketing? Because I know it's not an easy task in general, and it's especially not easy for a lot of developers. You know, I've been there in that phase that a lot of developers get stuck in where it's just like way easier to code than it is to figure out, okay, how am I going to get this into people's hands? And yet you've been working on Metaphysy for seven years now. So you've kind of seen like the entire marketing landscape change. I mean, there was no product hunt a lot of the channels and a lot of the things that have been written about how to get the word out about your products just didn't exist seven years ago. So how have you thought about, you know, finding customers and, and making sure that people know about your products? Yeah, I'll tell you, like marketing is definitely a sore spot for me because it's so hard to know when something is successful in, in that realm. And for something like the, the products that I make, it's not like I'm selling shoes where you see the shoes and you're like, I want those shoes and you immediately buy it. I'm making a tool for developers. So they might be, other developers might be working on a site and they might come across the product because it gets retweeted for, for something like that. But they might not be working on the site that needs it at that time. So it's, it's hard for me to, to track these things. And my sweet spot is working with code and doing design. So, you know, I'm always uh, like reluctant to do marketing things because I, I don't see <laughs> the immediate results. But I've been trying a, a bunch of different things. And it's really what, what are the things that appeal to me? Um, and some of the basic stuff where it's like I, I never did an email campaign before I started um, working on 
metaphysics full time. So that was like one of the first things I did it was like, all right, I'm coming out with a, a new major version and I'm going to be putting together an email list of all my previous customers. Like I, I hadn't thought of that at the time or I, I just hadn't put the time into it. How much, how, how big is your mailing list, by the way? Uh, it's over 10,000 um, previous customers right now. Do you find that it really helps you and uh, like getting the word out about new products or, or what kind of emails do you send to your mailing list? Well, you know, this is one of these things where it's like there's part of me that wants to be a marketer and grow the business and the other part of me wants to be like a human being and like not be, when I get emails, you know, it's always like, ugh, it's, <laughs> you know, um, but every now and then there's a there's a product or service I really love that I get the email and I appreciate. So hopefully I, I try to position metaphysy like, like something like that, like people appreciate it. Um, so something like uh, Panic, you know, who makes... Uh, Mac apps, they they have really great emails, so I've tried to copy off of their stuff. And is it successful? Yeah, it definitely brings in um, previous customers. There's, uh, it's so fulfilling to see when I when I send out one of those emails. There's a cohort that will immediately buy it, and it's just like, <laughs> I mean, those those are my people right there. Um, you know, and before doing the email, I didn't really know that that existed. Yeah, that's like your tribe, like the people who will follow you and buy anything that you make because they love what you do. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, but it's like, how do they get to that point? You know, is do they even need to see this email or are they already following me? You know, there's all these questions out there. Well, you know, I, I responded to your email to, to ask you to come on the podcast because I think you, you launched uh, the new version of Infinite Scroll. And I was like, holy shit, I should get Dave on the podcast. Metaphysics is so awesome. And, you know, I don't think I would have, I would have thought about it without the email. So there's a limited, there's one data point for you. That's great to hear. And it's, it's always like so murky what, what works and what, because like for all I know, um, my email is now going to spam, you know, like am I, am I doing too much spammy things and now I'm preventing from actually seeing people, but Hey, I got, got this gig, so I'll take it. What other, what other marketing tactics have you tried over the years and what are some things that have worked or, or that have not worked? Um, last year I tried doing a series of kind of like, uh, video recording. I just did it over Twitter. So at the time you could only post 30 seconds to Twitter. So I was like, it was really short. It was like, uh, I'm working on this feature. Um, I closed out these issues and I made this much money this week. See you next week. Um, really fast. And the response to that was interesting because there was a lot of people like, Hey, I, you know, I don't know why, but I've listen to your video like once a week you know it's like <laughs> even people like like my um my brother-in-law you know who doesn't you know work in tech whatsoever he's just like you know it's just nice to see and there was also um something compelling about putting a, a human face to things um where it wasn't just like a, a website when you think of metaphysics it was actually dave DeSandro behind it but uh, you know did that get me any new customers May- maybe I also um, tried some kind of what I did as a campaign for CodePens, to which is a site that you can make um, website demos on. So I got a bunch of demo people in that scene to to make things with Isotope and Packery and my products, and hopefully get that community excited or at least that community know about it. Because then I'm leveraging those demo people; they have their own you know followers around them, and hopefully they can spread out the word that they, you know, I, I felt like that was a kind of interesting way to, to get different people to see it. And then another thing I did was try, um, Twitter promoted tweets. 
um, which is, you know, I'm like a big Twitter user, but I also feel it's a, you know, you're kind of like blinded when you're like working in your own home. That's not a phrase, but like, <laughs> it's, it's so close to me. That's like all I can see sometimes. So, uh, and, and I've had like some, some good tweets that get lots of retweets and things like that. So uh, that's kind of how I judge if it's uh, done well. Because again, I don't know if people see that tweet and they eventually come back to actually buy something, but there was just like a more of a general awareness. So those are the things I've tried so far. And then the other thing was, was something completely new, which was last year I did this completely different project called Logo Pizza where I, I, I was so tired of working on code that I, I made, I was like, let me work on logos because, I, you know, it's like, that was way more enticing. It was like the new shiny thing for me to chase at the time. It was like, no more code. And so I made these logos and I, it was this kind of gimmicky site that had the price went up with each logo purchased. And that was like, when I came out, that got a lot of traction on um, Hacker News and, uh, you know, via tweets and stuff like that. And that was helped promote the brand and also brought in all these different um logo clients so can you explain the uh like the the gimmick you talked about with the pricing yeah so the way it worked it was like um there's 50 logos the original price for any logo was like a hundred dollars and then as soon as one person purchases a logo the price increases by twenty dollars so like then it's like 120 for the next logo then it's 140 so the idea behind that is that like if you're going to sit on your butt like the price is going to go up. In addition to like the logo that you want might not be available because once it's purchased that person owns it. So with this it was this kind of gimmick in addition to just logos. And what was the point of it? Was it was the gimmick to did you think it would, you know, make it more interesting to people or more likely to succeed in hacker news or was there another reason behind it? I had this inkling that when like it was kind of like a non-conventional thing i've i've seen good results from these kind of and i don't even know how <laughs> i don't even know what i can put to but i could just think like the things that like i share the things that i see like on my twitter feed it's not just like you know company releases new product it's like a special kind of one time kind of thing right um and so i guess that's what i was i was trying to go after and also i got this idea from uh, another kind of promotional website where it was like, I wear your shirt.com where it's the same thing where it's like this guy who wore a t-shirt and he would take, you know, pictures with it. And so it'd be a post on Instagram. And so you would pay this guy $20 for January 1st. Now on January 2nd, it was $40. And by the end of the year, he made, you know, like six figures just on <laughs> wearing wow. t-shirts. Right. And it was like, it was one of these things like I should have thought of that. So <laughs> I, you know, I just, I just reused it, that exact concept. And I felt like it produced the same results. Like people are like, Oh, like this is, you know, like people, people bought these logos. I had some people, it was like, they just wanted the logo, you know, they didn't even really have a project for it. They're just like, let me get it. <laughs> it, it triggered some like short response in, in their head. So well, it's like the price is going to go up, you know, they got to buy now. Otherwise the logos are going to be hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And also like logos are kind of like ever present, but um, they're kind of hard to find. You know, if you have to work with a logo designer that costs more money, and if you go to like something that's like, you know, f logos for sale, I feel it's like you don't get as a good a product. So 
I was kind of somewhere in between there where it was like, you know, you, you pay more money, but you might be feeling better about it um, because, I don't know, it's like a nicely designed site or something like that. You know, like I, I had a particular skill set there that I could exploit. So not only did you have like an interesting pricing model for Logo Pizza, where the, the price increases every time somebody buys a logo, but you've also got, you know, all of your other projects have, I would say, you know, pretty abnormal pricing models, at least compared to a lot of the other people that I've interviewed, where you're selling open source software. Uh, anybody can just come through and basically download what you've, what you've made and, and never pay you a dime. But you've got a license that says, hey, if you're going to use this for commercial reasons, then you, know, you need to pay me $20 or $30 or however much your different libraries cost. How does that work exactly? And how do you ensure that people are paying who are supposed to be paying? Oh boy, licensing has been, it's another like sore spot for me because it's legal stuff. And it's like, who understands it? Um, so when I first started out, it was just like, as you said, it was kind of like a stipulation where if you use this for commercial reasons, you need to need to pay for it. And then eventually that was problematic because there was some people that, you know, actually knew legalese and said like, you're not using the right license here. And so, you know, I tried different things and eventually where I ended up now is that the actual terms of the license is that the product is open source and it's also licensed under GPL. And one of the stipulations of GPL is that if you use this um, publicly, you have to in turn open source your project. So if you do not want to use this project or open source your project, you need to pay for this license, which will allow you to use the pro- metaphysic product under closed source. And the reason why I got there is because of things like WordPress, which needs, you know, GPL is like a big thing in WordPress. And um, it was just kind of like, <laughs> that's, it's been working so far. And so I actually worked with a lawyer to develop that. Um, but as you mentioned, it's front end software. So all this stuff is, readily available and the things that i'm competing against are free you know like there's a part of me that's like should i be making more money or is it miraculous that i'm making money at all um because somebody can be like i don't want to pay this but i think the way i went about it was like try to make it official work with the lawyer so at least if somebody does check it it looks legit and metaphysics whole business has been built around <laughs> the appearance of being legit <laughs> legit i mean it, ac- it actually is legit but it's like it it feeds back on one another yeah i mean you definitely have the appearance and i, I think isotope was one of the very first purchases that i made when starting Andy hackers i was like i'm gonna have a grid i've seen this cool animation effect somewhere let me just google and try to find out where that came from and it took me to metaphysics and i i checked your licensing page and i was like i just bought it you know, it was like, it's super cheap too. Uh, how do you decide on pricing? Because I think that's a thing that a lot of people struggle with, where the common advice you hear from every angle is charge more. But psychologically, it's so easy to come up with reasons why you can't charge more, why you shouldn't charge more, especially when, like you said, all of your competitors are basically free. Yeah. And this is another thing too, where it's like, I have a personal feeling about how to do pricing because I'm a front end developer and it comes from a community of free and open opportunity and the stuff I'm competing against is, is also free. So the way the metaphysic pricing works is that it's per developer and it's a one-time purchase and it is tied to the major version. So if you need a, if there's a big version upgrade, you'll need to make a new purchase. However, it's not tied. It's not annual recurrence. 
And the current um, pricing scheme is that it's uh, $25 for a single individual, and it's like 110 bucks for up to eight people, and then it's 324 everybody in your organization. And I haven't played around too much with that over the years. You know, I, the way it's like worked out is that um, between those three tiers, I'm kind of making the same amount of money for the, for an individual product amongst those three. So I think like (laughs) that seems like a good thing that it's not like lopsided in in any way like that. I'm sure I, I might be able to make more money if it was reoccurring, but there's a, there's a part of me that just hates that model. Like I hate paying for, Photoshop month after month and I kind of see the updates, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm getting that much. And it's also, there's just something weird about paying for open source software in general. So there's part of me that's like, feels icky about it, even though it is like my, my income, I do it so I can (laughs) feel good about it too. That's, that's kind of the pricing model. It's not, it hasn't been AB tested. Your entire situation is pretty cool because you're basically just doing whatever it is that you want. Like you're working on on projects that are fun for you to work on, and when they stop being fun, you just work on a different thing, like like logo pizza, and you're charging the amount of money that feels right for you, and it's all working out to the point where like you can still you know sustain basically a developer salary on your own, which is like you're pretty much living the dream, Dave. How has your life changed since you since you quit Twitter and, and started working on Metaphysy on your own? I mean, have you found that you know it's it's lived up to your expectations of what it's like to be kind of like the solo bootstrapper or, you know, do you, have you found you have a lot more free time? What is, what is the upside of this new lifestyle? I mean, at the time it was um, just so liberating. Uh, I was working, you know, at Twitter and being a part of the big company, it's hard to see the fruits of your labor manifested at, with the company at large, you know, cause it has to go through multiple rounds of revisions and it has to work with the larger experience. And, I was really feeling pressed down against that pressure at the time I, I left Twitter. And so the first couple months working for Metaphysy full-time, it felt just so enthralling to work on something that I knew was going to see the light of day. That was all my work. Um, and even if it was successful or not, like I could feel that I did something with that. And so that was just amazing. That's one of like the highlights of my career at that time. You know, just the fact that I didn't have to deal with meetings was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, it was like, you know, I'm going to go see a movie or I'm going to go play at the arcade for like a day because you know what, if I was at another company, this time would be stuck in meetings or responding to emails. Yeah, it would just be wasted. And I I, I feel the same way. I think like the, just the freedom and like the self-determination that comes with being self-employed and being able to, to work whenever you want, take care of chores whenever you want, just take a day off or a week off whenever you want is awesome. Do you still feel kind of the same way that you did right after you quit? I mean, the, that initial high has kind of smoothed out a little bit. Um, but recently, the big thing was that, you know, my son was born six months ago. And so I was able to, you know, set my own hours and say, I'm going to be taking paternity leave and focusing on my wife and my son for four months. It ended up being, you know, I didn't really have a hard deadline there, but I was able to do that. And, you know, that's a, that's a whole big life experience that I'm very thankful to have. Um, and that was able to be, that, that occurred because of metaphysics and, and working for myself. And there's other things that, you know, like moving out of New York and buying a house. It's like, how do people do this when they work full time? You know, it's like, how do they even like, yeah. like 
sign all the papers and stuff like that. You know, I was working for myself. I could scan in stuff. It's just like so much paperwork. People just don't read stuff. They just they just sign it. <laughs> well, I'm even just like if you just need to scan something, it's like, oh my gosh, you got to print it out, scan it. It takes a lot of time. So it's been, I absolutely appreciate it. And I feel like so lucky to be able to do these things. But at the same time, you know, it does come with its own responsibilities. Right now, Metaphysy, uh, it's having a down year. Um, that might be because I took paternity leave or might just because, you know, other market forces or something like that. And so now there's this question hanging over me, like, what do we do to get it back to where it was a, a year or two ago? Or um, is this, how does metaphysy change? Or is, is this still going to be a full-time thing um, come a, a year later? So it, it does come at its own cost. Yeah, it was actually a perfect segue. I wanted to end by talking about kind of how things have changed and, and dealing with competition and, and really like your long-term outlook because... You know, obviously, one of the upsides to having a job, I mean, you can be fired at any time, but like there is such a thing as, you know, job security. And you can be reasonably certain that if you have a job, you will probably be employed, you know, indefinitely into the future. Whereas when you branch out on your own, nothing's guaranteed, right? Your, your business can decline, your marketing efforts can fail, your new products might not take off, et cetera. So, how do you think about the future and, and what are your plans to, I guess, keep up this lifestyle and, and keep Metaphysy successful? Plans for the future. Well, each year it's been get to the end of the year. <laughs> you know, now that I've been doing it full time for um, two and a half years, I'm able to see like what was I what have I been able to do with that time. So things like Logo Pizza were a big time investment, but I felt like it paid off. So for me right now, like the biggest thing was getting a new product out the door, which was um, Infinite Scroll which brought us to this conversation. Now it's like, can, can I build the business? And then also there's these like kind of bigger goals, which would be like, can I hire somebody else? Um, can I grow the business to, to that much? Because I think what Metaphysy is doing is that, you know, bringing money into a front-end developer just on my front-end code is very special, and I wish more developers would do it. So... You know, it's kind of like a lofty, touchy-feely kind of goal, but it would be great to um, distribute this business model kind of like in the open-source spirit and have other people do this sort of thing. And I have seen some other people try it like that, but, you know, to the point where metaphysics, it's still just me, which is, you know, <laughs> one of the things I've always kind of felt reluctant about where it's like I haven't been able to grow it past me. Uh, I'd love to be able to hire somebody else. So... It's one year at a time, um, and right now I'm just thinking about getting that sales back up, to be honest. Yeah, a friend of mine was talking to me, and he, he said that he really wanted to start something, but he felt like he was kind of late to the party. Like he wished he'd started an online business or a side project five years ago, but he dragged his feet, and now he feels like it's too late because it seems like everybody's doing it, you know, and there's so much written about it. and. Uh, you know, I personally think that it's 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 not true, and it's still early days, and that ten years from now there'll be a lot more people doing what you're doing and what a lot of other people are doing than there are now. But what would you say to someone in that position who's who's considering starting a side project or who's considering starting an online business, but is kind of on the fence about it? I'd say the first thing to do is is start. You know, just deal, do it like any other thing. Make a demo and do it for you, and see where things goes. You know, it's like as you. In my experience, as you get better by doing something over and over, but you also see how 
you personally respond to it. And so this is, you know, whenever I've ever tried some new stuff where it's like freelancing or working for like different clients or things like that, like that was kind of new for me a couple years ago, but at least I at least tried it. And I also didn't feel that it had to be the next big thing. So start and also keep it small. It's okay if things don't work out because <laughs> everything I did worked out. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Dave. I think uh, I've had a really good time talking to you. Yeah. Thank you for letting me share my story. Where can people go online to, uh, to find out more about you and about Metaphysy? Uh, my sites are desandro.com, D-E-S-A-N-D-R-O, and metaphysy.co, M-E-T-A-F-I-Z-Z-Y. And what, what's, what's your Twitter? I'm going to go follow you right now. My Twitter handle is Desandro, and Metaphysy's handle is Metaphysyco. All right. Take it easy, Dave. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Andy Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out, and I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com slash forum. Hope to see you guys there.